Welcome to The 90s Sucked. A podcast about the 90s and how they sucked. With your hosts, Adam Todd Brown and Chad Wild. Hey everybody, welcome to The 90s Sucked. They were all right. The 90s fucking sucked. Nah, they're cool. A podcast about how the 90s were all sucked. right. I'm your host, Adam Todd Brown. Who are you? I'm the other host, Chet. The 90s were all right wild. And what are we talking about today? Talking baseball. We're talking about the decline of the baseball card industry, which is it like the baseball card industry still exists, but... It was one thing prior to the 90s, and by the time the 90s were over, it was a very, very different thing. And that's not just because of the internet. It's in part because of the internet. But, but there are a lot of other reasons. Not exclusively. Some real racketeering. Go- is racketeer- racket short for racketeering, right? Some real racket going on there in the industry. I, I don't know that racket is short for racketeering. No, probably isn't. But there was definitely a racket going on. <laughs> I don't know if there was racketeering going on, but there was definitely a racket in that industry. There was there was some some shadiness happening with the baseball card industry. And a lot of what we're talking about centers around a documentary called Jack of All Trades, which is on Amazon now. But if you can like this, by the time this comes out, it'll be a couple days away from being on Netflix, I believe. It comes out on Netflix I think on their Twitter they said July thirteenth. I think I rented it on Amazon for four ninety nine. Yeah, I rent. You can rent it on Amazon even for if it's not on Netflix. Google Play, but iTunes. At, at this point, it would be we'd be doing you a disservice to not also mention. I think like literally this weekend, as this episode comes out, this documentary will be on Netflix. And the thing that resonated about this documentary with me is this could have been me. Because I collected baseball cards feverishly as a child. I collected baseball cards, I collected G.I. Joe figures, and I collected Star Wars figures. Uh, Almost in that reverse order. Star Wars, G.I. Joe, baseball cards. And I collected them with the intention of, well, these are, are scarce in some cases and valuable, and I'll be able to sell them and make money. And Back at the time when the baseball card industry was as giant as it was, which we'll talk about a little more, I did actually at various points sell baseball cards to like pay bills. Like our phone would get cut off because my family was terrible at paying bills. And Spend I would spend all their money on baseball cards. Well, no, I worked a paper route and I had jobs and shit and I bought stuff with the money I earned because my parents didn't have any fucking money to give me. And I wanted to talk on the phone to people and have cable. And sometimes they wouldn't pay the cable bill and they wouldn't pay the phone bill. And I would literally go sell baseball cards. Hadley's Mr. Hadley. I have in the notes, the names of uh, the, the three baseball card stores I used to go to all the time. And I just remembered the name of one of them Hadley's, but we'll get to it. But I would like go sell baseball cards to pay my family's bills sometimes. And as I got older, I would look back on that and be like, man, I wish I kept those. 
because those sure would be worth a bunch of money now. Hard toilet paper. That's what I learned from the documentary. They are worthless. Hard toilet paper. Baseball cards from like 86, I think even earlier than that, like 82 to 96, some like in that range, just, just completely fucking worthless now. And that's one of the things you see in this documentary is this guy, his name's Stu Stone. I do agree. He's kind of insufferable as a person. Uh, yeah, I, I mentioned that before we started officially recording. The yeah. only thing more annoying than adult Stu Stone is childhood Stu Stone that keep, they keep cutting back to. Which, brief backstory on this guy, he's a very, he was a very successful child actor and VO actor. Like, right. when he started naming his credits at the beginning of the doc, I was like, oh man, will this ever end? But he's been voices of fucking so many childhood yeah. cartoons and movies and shit. Yeah, and... Uh, Basically, we'll get into the documentary more in a second, but basically it starts with him cleaning out a room in his mom's house. It was his old room where he's got all this junk. He's got 17 boxes there, I think. And he finds all these baseball cards that he had as a kid. And he's like, oh, shit, I'm going to go sell all these baseball cards and make a bunch of fucking money. And he doesn't. He finds out they're worthless. Is it spoiling too much if I mention the car in the parking lot before he goes in? When they literally run the baseball cards that over? That was so fucking weird to me. Uh, yeah, I don't... It how? No. Like, he's about to cards? go to this card convention, and he steps away for a minute, and he comes back, and he's losing his mind on his sister and, like, his best friend, because somehow they ran over... In this empty parking lot, they ran over his box of baseball cards with the car. But also didn't do that much damage. Yeah. It 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 was like it was, I wish I could have seen footage of that. And at that point, I texted you is the rest of this documentary about how he's getting divorced a divorce because I thought his sister was his wife. Like the way they <laughs> argued, I thought those two were fucking. Yeah, and I texted you back and said he's too emotionally damaged to have any real relationships, which is a weird thing to text back regarding a baseball card documentary. But this documentary is really two stories. It's one about why baseball cards are worthless now. And two, it's about this guy's relationship with his dad, uh, who he had become estranged with. And three, it's about how the Holocaust has ruined children. I know you and I are going to disagree on that, but I'll let the people watch it. and. Well, it's such a it's a point they make, but it's not about the it's not what the whole documentary is about. It's it's not about that. That's the dad's excuse for being a shitty dad is, oh, it's the Holocaust. He's a piece of shit. Like, you don't get to hide behind the Holocaust when you leave your family for another family his, you already had his excuse, set up somewhere else. That's not Holocaust his shit. His excuse to his son was, because his son's like, you just left us. You didn't You didn't even, like, call or, or do anything or check out. He's like, yeah, another family to take care of. Right. Like, so that this documentary is not, if anything, it's about how this guy hid behind the Holocaust as an explanation. I would watch a whole documentary on the father. The, it's called Jack of all trades. What's the dad's name? Trades. Jack. <laughs> Motherfucker. <laughs> Trade stone. <laughs> Trade stone. Which stone isn't even his real last name. No, it was uh, some long Jewish name. And, and then it, he's like, I had a hard time pronouncing it when I was young. So they shorten it. And it's like, no child actor. They are like too <laughs> Jewy. Let's uh, let's Jonathan Labinowitz that down to John Stewart. Right. So, did you uh, before we get into 
what happened with the baseball card industry in this documentary more, which we're going to focus more on the baseball card side of things. Uh, I'll probably talk about my own dad a lot because baseball cards were a thing me and my dad very much bonded over. And it was an activity we participated in together, just like the, the guy in this documentary. The difference is my dad didn't leave us for a completely different family only to resurface in the same city decades later. He just died when I was 17. Nor did your dad open a card trading store being like, this is a business I can run a real racket on. No, Reagan made sure he didn't ever have any hope of that. But that's another podcast. Uh, so did you as a kid collect baseball gonna... cards or anything? You were probably a little outside the age range for baseball cards. So I had, you remember those long, narrow cardboard uh Things that you could like put one row. Yep. I, I had like probably three or four of those full. So I maybe had a thousand baseball cards. I don't know. Each box holds like what, 300 or something? Maybe more than that. Yeah, they had them in all sorts of different configurations. I had thousands and thousands of baseball cards. And then I had one book where, did you ever have one of those books where it's like plastic? You could open it and there are nine slots for cards and you could just like organize the cards in a, in a yeah. flip book? So I had whatever season of the New York Mets, like I, I specifically think my T-ball team was the Mets. So I'm like, oh, I'm a Mets fan. You know? Yeah. Um, but it wasn't hardcore by any means. I think somebody gave me a shitload of baseball cards, like an aunt that was like trying to clear out her house. Yeah. And uh, but I do remember baseball cards were definitely a thing at the checkout aisle for a long time. Like just as much as gum and candy as today, baseball cards were always there. Yeah. With their shitty gum. Yeah, it was only Tops that had the shitty gum. And the reason Tops did that is Tops was a gum factory. Company, a company. And they initially made their cards out of the boxes that the gum was like the materials for the gum was shipped to them in. Like they were just basically recycling. And that's how baseball cards became a thing. Uh I was I was a very savvy baseball card collector as a child. Uh me and my dad got like I started playing baseball and collecting baseball cards in 84. So I would have been eight. And I sort of like at that time, everyone collected baseball cards. It was the industry in the late 80s and early 90s was fucking huge. And they talk about that a lot in this documentary. And I remember it vividly because it was like from the age of like eight to maybe 12 or 13 baseball was all i fucking cared about and baseball cards like i i think me and my dad both were like yeah we're investing in the fucking future here because at the time they made it seem like because everyone was collecting baseball cards there was always a market for them like like i said i would go out and sell baseball cards to pay my family's bills that's how plentiful uh, Baseball card shops and things of that nature were in the late 80s and early Who 90s. Who was your favorite player as a kid? Did you have like a favorite player and like try to get all of his cards? For me, it was uh, Frank Thomas. See, I didn't think of baseball cards that way. Like I thought of them even as a kid. I thought of them as an actual collector. Like I, my favorite team has always been the Cubs. My favorite player as a kid was Ryan Sandberg. But for me and getting a Ryan Sandberg rookie was mm, uh, his rookie card was with the Phillies because he played with the Phillies first. Uh, but I, I approached baseball card collecting even as a kid 
as like a like a collector would. Like I was worried m- more about what cards were hard to find and rare and collecting complete sets. Uh, the card I probably lusted after the most as a child was the either the Don Mattingly rookie card who comes up. Don Mattingly comes up in our next episode pretty prominently or the Daryl Strawberry rookie card. The Daryl Strawberry rookie card was what Tops would do is they would issue their set of cards at the beginning of the season, which was, I think it was like 700 in some cards, maybe less than that. But then throughout the season, there would be all these transactions where players would get traded, rookies would get called up from the major league or from the minors. And so at the end of the season, they would put out a 200 card, they called it the traded series, where if a player switched teams, his card with that new team would be in that series. And that's where the 1983 Daryl Strawberry rookie was. So right off the bat, it was harder to get than other rookie cards. And Daryl Strawberry and Dwight Gooden both were such phenoms when they first started. Like Daryl Strawberry is kind of a joke now, but people thought he was going to be like the next Ted Williams at the time. So you're talking that card came out in 83. By the time I quit fucking with baseball cards, which would have been 90, 91, something like that. I think it was worth like 65 or $70 for one card. And I had like three of them. Well, inflation, that's like $150 today. Yeah, that's you would think. And that's what a lot of people who collected baseball cards thought. They're like, well, fuck, this Daryl Strawberry card's worth like 50 or yeah, 60 people bucks would go now. buy cases of this shit at Costco or whatever. Right. And then put them in their garage and be like, this is, instead of investing in like an IRA Roth or some shit, like I'm going to. Right. And you could, cards. there were so many places to buy this stuff. And like when I was a kid, there were three baseball card stores I went to. The most first base, second base, and third base. Yes, they were a chain. <laughs> I can't like base I collectors. I know one of the documentary, like one of the card stores featured in this documentary, is literally right up the street, and it's the largest collection of baseball cards right that exists. We could burn the place down, or we could like talk to the guy on a podcast or something and like that. Burn it down. Like I was just gonna say, a quick realization. I, I, I just had a flashback, so I had. I had probably hundreds, if not a couple thousand cards, but baseball was not the prominent card I had. I I would get cards, but for the NFL and NBA, and then I also had some baseball ones. But the time, yeah. like all the leagues, there were cards for... Yeah, all the leagues had cards, but baseball, baseball cards were, were always... The, the, the mythical, like, yeah. make your money. Like, I did have a Magic Johnson rookie card at one point that I sold for a decent amount of money. And, like, the Michael Jordan rookie might still be worth a decent amount i don't know but one of the really prominent ones that we'll talk about the ken griffey jr rookie card is kind of what killed the baseball card industry but the the three stores i remember going to i don't there was one above miracle mart in peoria miracle mart was like a convenience dollar store type of thing that was by kmart and i only went there when my mom went to kmart and the guy who worked there looked like a cia agent which probably means very different things to you and me. What do you picture when you picture a CIA agent? Just a normal fucking guy that's like, hey, what are you doing here? You're looking too normal. Yeah, I, I always picture a dad with a mustache and a polo. Yeah, like, that's, that's what I mean. Like, yeah, that's a CIA you... agent. And he chain smoked. His cards were a little expensive, but he gave me a baseball card from the 1800s for free once just because I asked. He had a stack of them. 
and I asked how much they were, and they were it was worth like ten bucks because it was a random unknown player. From the original top segregation series. That's right. The the no blacks series. Uh so the I don't remember the name of that store. I do remember Hadley's Coins and Collectibles, which was run by this uh, curmudgeonly old dude who I think was named Gene Hadley or Joe Hadley. Uh, he chain smoked constantly, but he was the main person I would sell baseball cards to because his shop was maybe three blocks from my grade school and four blocks from where I lived. So I would just always go to Hadley's to sell my cards. Uh, and then there was Doug's which was located in Landmark, which in Peoria, Landmark is this, I don't know what's there now, but as a kid, it was this big complex that had a gym, a bar, an off-track betting facility, a video game arcade, a bowling alley, a movie theater, a barber shop, and a baseball card store. And what the fuck? And it was all indoors, and my parents were in a bowling league, and they would bowl every Tuesday night. And so every Tuesday night, I would hang out at Landmark and go fuck with Doug and talk to him about baseball cards. And these shops were everywhere in the late 80s and early 90s. In the documentary, they mention there were around 10,000 baseball card shops in America during this time, which that's a whole fucking lot. Yeah, that is... Yeah, that's more than I can wrap my head around. I don't think there are that many McDonald's in the United States. Now? There have to be. How many? There have to be 10,000 McDonald's in the U.S. I'm going to guess 31,000. Just like I said, 13,000. 13,000. So there were at one point almost as many baseball card shops as there were fucking McDonald's. And that's back then. There might have been more back then. Because now there's 13,000 McDonald's. They've presumably expanded in the two decades since. Yes, so, two decades ago. Yeah, okay. So so that's how big the baseball card industry was at the time. And Stu Stone's dad in this documentary, he owned a chain of 11 stores. Which, imagine 11... Wait, it was a chain? Well, he owned 11 stores. That I makes it a chain, baby. I missed baby. that detail. Yeah, he had 11 stores throughout, uh, I think, Canada, maybe just throughout the Toronto area, because Toronto's a big city, and it is it is honestly hard to conceive how big baseball cards were at one point. They were just the thing that people collected, and then there was kind of everything else. Yeah, then like Beanie Babies, Beanie Babies, Beanie Babies, and all that shit came along later. Yeah, Operation Desert Storm trading cards, which came oh, obviously in the 90s. And that was that was when baseball cards were actually already starting to decline a little bit. They're like, let's start let's start selling other shit. They start yeah, they started branching out into other shit. They had serial killer trading cards during that time too. Uh so they one of the cards they bring up in this documentary, the Jose Canseco rookie card. The almost has a mustache Jose Canseco rookie card. He looks absurd i mean he's jose both canseco. in the rookie card and him now and in the documentary yeah but this rookie card the way these cards would work is if you bought an entire box of packs of cards which there would be 36 packs in a box in a box would run you like anywhere from 25 to 35 dollars you could open 
like Stu Stone in this documentary mentions he has never pulled a Jose Canseco rookie card out of a box of 1986 Donruss cards, which is insane. You would get like what would happen is you would open them and you would just get the same players over and over and over. And then eventually, maybe if you were lucky, you would see a Jose Canseco rookie card. And when you combine that with the fact that they had this price guide called Beckett's, Beckett's was huge among baseball pl- baseball card collectors. I subscribed to Beckett's. I don't know if I subscribed to it or just went when it would come out each month, I would go to the baseball card shop and buy it. But they would list all the baseball cards that were out and they would put these little symbols next to them. And if there was a diamond, I think that meant it was a rare card that was hard to find. And if there was a triangle, it meant it went up in price. Yeah, if there was a triangle pointing up, it had gone up in price. If so there people was would one look for like, oh, we're, we're like they that's to what find you, their cards. And- that's what you would look for is you would look for those cards, and it would have the like the estimated price that it was worth at the time. And when you combine that with the fact that when you go through these open packs and never find these cards you're like well holy shit these cards really are pretty fucking rare and it was that way for a while like with the jose canseco rookie cards it like the price stayed high because they did seem like they were hard to find but what people didn't realize and what initially or what eventually killed the baseball card industry so to speak or at least uh hurt it beyond repair is the the famous Ken Griffey Jr. rookie card, which this documentary covers how it came about. It's a pretty interesting story. Do you remember this part? Yes. It, I remember all of it, except for I thought he was fucking his sister for a little while, and then apparently his dad had a chain store, because they only went back and revisited the one store. Uh, right. The the store where the, the woman he eventually started the new family with worked. Worked. Yeah. Uh, yeah, in the documentary, they interview a guy named... Don Giedemann, I believe, was Tommy that his name? G. Tom Giedemann, sorry. Tommy G. And uh, Tom was the first official employee of Upper Deck, which Upper Deck is... When you take a shit in the top part of a toilet. It's that, but it's also a baseball card company that I think some people argue sort of destroyed the baseball card industry. Because what they did is they came in... Like, baseball cards forever were just a basic thing. Tops put out a set. Fleer put out a set. Donruss put out a set. That was that set for that year. What Upper Deck did is they tried to make a more sophisticated baseball card with, like, better photography and better like graphics. the hologram thing. The hologram things, like fucking attaching pieces of jerseys and bats to cards. And they really catered more to the investor than the collector. And that, I think, alienated a lot of people because they would make sets that were like, you know, seven and eight hundred dollars just to own. And that's going to turn a lot of average people off. Well, but- that's where people start coming out of the woodworks where like collectors were. I mean, they said this in the documentary, like uh, Stu's dad was like, yeah, then the, where the real money was, was like doctors and dentists and shit would come out and be dropping thousands of dollars fuck you money you know right and the guy what do you say he's like this one dentist's wife was like can't believe my husband spends thousands of dollars on these and he's like better these cards than a blonde (laughs) that's a good point yeah yeah what happened and it it really started with the well they explained how the ken griffey jr rookie card came about 
this Tom Giedemann, he had just been hired as the first employee at Upper Deck. And this was actually pretty brilliant. He assumed Ken Griffey Jr. was going to get called up to the majors at some point. First round, first draft pick. First draft pick. He assumed Ken Griffey Jr. is going to get called up by the Mariners at some point. Go play with daddy. In throughout the 1989 season. So when Upper Deck makes their first set, they make Ken Griffey the number one card. And that was that made what that did is that meant it was the only Ken Griffey Jr. card on the market that year. So automatically, it's sort of rare and hard to find then. And then because they're a new company, what happens is they struggle to make as many sets as they're supposed to. They're supposed to make 200 of these sets a day yeah, two or three hundred a day and the machine keeps fucking up or whatever and they sometimes only make like 20 or 30 they make like 20 or 30 a day so that leads to this uh demand for these sets where people are buying what is a 400 hundred dollar set of baseball cards which imagine that's so much money still with inflation it's doubled today yeah and immediately it would be worth like a thousand dollars and what upper deck did isn't technically illegal, but it's highly unethical, and it kind of gutted the baseball card Multiple market. people in this documentary, including like former employees and affiliates, are like, it wasn't technically illegal, but it should have been. Right. What they did is after 1989, when all these Ken Griffey Jr. rookie cards are legitimately scarce and hard to find on the market, in 1990, they print a whole new run of Ken, just Ken Griffey Jr. rookie cards. And fucking flood the market with them. So people who are like at the lowest level of collecting are thinking, well, I have this Ken Griffey Jr. rookie card. This magazine says it's worth $20. That's because they're so rare and I need to keep this and preserve it forever because it's so rare. It's only going to get more and more expensive. And instead, what happened is Upper Deck flooded the market with Ken Griffey Jr. rookie cards to the point where they were just printing up a sh- like sheets with 100 cards at a time. And you could just buy these sheets and have them cut into cards. And now all of a sudden you have a sheet with like $120 bills on it, basically. Which the Upper Deck employee they talked to like denies that. But spoiler alert, it, yeah, spoiler alert at the end of the documentary, Upper Deck... Uh... Not allowed to make baseball cards anymore. Yeah, as it stands right now, Upper Deck is only, I think, making NHL cards, and Tops is only making baseball cards. Uh, But that depends on which Upper Deck employee you talk to in the episode, too. Tom Giedemann is the one who says that they were printing up these sheets of cards so that they could just sell them aftermarket, basically. So yeah, one employee says they didn't, but most it seems like most of the industry agrees that, especially when it comes to the Ken Griffey Jr. rookie card, they just sort of overprinted them. In pre-internet days and like some of the levels of security we have now, there had to have been some inside employees. Like, what a great job that would have been, working inside a baseball oh, yeah. card factory and just like just printing off yeah. an extra roll or two and then going off and... Yeah, and, and, and making dough. And so what happened as a result of this is all of these collectors were out here spending all this money stockpiling these cards, thinking, well, I'll be able to sell these in the future because they're so rare, not knowing that dealers and people with the right connections and access could just go to these card companies and be like, hey, I need 500 Jose Canseco rookie cards. Also, again, pre-internet, so there wasn't right. message boards and 
and ways for like if the internet existed like it did now then this probably wouldn't have gotten off the ground because people would just talk and figure the shit out way early right and so so basically what happened is people are stockpiling these cards knowing that there's 11,000 baseball card shops in America. I can just go out into the streets and flip these at any point. Imagine what it's going to be like 20, 30 years from now. And that only works if all of those collectors stay in the market. And all of those collectors did not stay in the market. People started leaving. And there are there's several reasons for that. We'll get to a, a big one at one point. But... That that stockpiling of baseball cards is what led to documentaries like Jack of All Trades. And it's a story that I'm sure has played out with countless people in recent years who collected baseball cards at a time when the baseball card industry was huge and was just trying to cater to everyone. And they didn't pay any attention to supply and demand and they produced too much. The people who were stockpiling it somehow didn't realize that they were overproducing stuff, which blows my mind. Like, if you're collecting something because you assume it's rare, but you can also go directly to fucking Upper Deck and say, give me a hundred, and they just give them to you, it's not rare. What also blows my mind is how many of these card companies have the original employees from the boom. Like, how are yeah. you, like, let go or fired for your incompetence? Yeah, I, I th well, what we talk about on the next episode, I think sort of provides a cover for a lot of those people yeah. because it wasn't just the overproducing is more what killed the value of baseball cards but the baseball strike itself has its own impact yeah or at least your own cover story yeah we talk about the 94 95 baseball strike on the next episode and that's what killed baseball in general for a while in the 90s and it contributed to the decline of baseball card uh, values and it's really just that period like they talk about a few different cards like the mickey mantle rookie card is still absurdly rare because it's from the fucking 1950s like if you're talking cards from like pre-80s then there's still there's still a lot of money to be made in those but if you're at home sitting on a box full of Michael Jordan taking batting practice with the White Sox upper deck cards. Call me. Call Chet so he can tell you those are worth absolutely nothing. Listen, a lot of people like soft toilet paper. I like a very specific type of hard toilet paper consisting of Michael Jordan getting out of his lane. You're really hung up on the dad calling these hard toilet paper at you the end of the document. You said it like four fucking times. Well, that's, I mean, yeah. I mean, I guess they but could every just time be hard. Well, every time he's like, <laughs> hard toilet paper, son. <laughs> Uh, yeah, like, so older cards still are worth money, but... I would argue that toilet paper probably costs more than the cards, like, paper weight-wise. Wow! You're not letting the toilet paper thing go. It's a fascinating thing. You said I couldn't talk about the Holocaust, so I'm talking about All right, that. talk about the Holocaust. No. Well, the, I don't want to give the entire documentary I don't, I'm just away. I'm just commenting on a thing that stood out to me, and that I think toilet paper itself is more... If I had to go buy weight in baseball cards or weight in quality toilet paper i'm guessing per ounce baseball cards are cheaper than toilet paper uh, a good toilet paper like a double ply quilted quicker picker up uh, this is all i, I don't know i don't maybe maybe yeah. maybe toilet paper 
is more expensive. You collect baseball cards? I think about. I don't collect baseball cards. Did. I did as a child. And you have nothing left. How and did you get rid of them? I sold them. All of them. Yeah. Was there like a bulk sale though? There was. Near there was, the end, I sold all the baseball cards I had because my family was fucking poor. And we made, even by that point, we made way less money than I expected to because the market was already crashing. I had a set of fucking USFL cards with Herschel Walker and Jim Kelly. Jim Kelly, Kelly card? Nice. Yeah. And Did you have a Donald Trump owner card? Is yeah. Is that a thing? Yeah. And I sold all of that shit and we got like $500. Which, at the time, it was huge because my family needed money. But there were points throughout my adult life where I would look back on that and be like, man, I really fucked up. If I had just kept those and maybe sold them now, I'd make a ton of money. So this documentary really hit home for me in a lot of ways because there's all the dad stuff. Like, this was a thing me and my dad participated in very much. And my dad died when I was very young. And so there was that. But also the... This documentary was comforting for me because I didn't do that. I haven't been hauling around a hundred pounds of baseball cards every time I've moved for the past 40 years because I thought they were worth money. And then I go to sell them one day and they're not. This documentary made me feel about feel good about the decision to have sold them when I did. I think I still have pogs at my parents' house. Those are also worthless. Pogs, beanie babies. I got some good slammers. That's the thing with any of these, there's a, it's a bubble and the, for those things to retain that value, that collector market has to stay that size and time and time again, like people just don't make that connection in their head. Like who the fuck was out there in the world expecting beanie babies to be popular forever? What's pop? What a toy lot of moms who justify taking their kids to McDonald's. Well, you didn't just get them at McDonald's. You bought them. Like you could, you people went and bought them on eBay and just assuming, well, oh yeah, this is worth a lot of money right now. It's going to be worth a lot of money forever. And very few things work that way. And historical documents and art are probably the, if you want to be a collector, collect artifacts or art from dead people. Because, because again, the collector's market never goes away. If you're investing in something that is, brand new and feels kind of like a fad which by this point with baseball cards by the time 89 90 hits by the time 90 hits it had it it had become something other than what it started as which is normal that like that happens with a lot of things but it was like the card companies recognized people were doing this as investments and they started preying on that assuming Baseball is just so popular. Baseball cards are just going to be popular forever. And only one of those things like was true. And it, like, and no one saw it was a bubble that no one saw. Like, no one saw the bursting of this bubble coming. Basically, well, the dad did. I think it does seem like the dad in the documentary did because he sold all his shit off pretty early on and then got the fuck out of town. Like the week after the the bar mitzvah that provides a lot of the video like the the family video in this documentary yeah. and that was a 87 i think i thought i want to say it was a little later but i could be wrong yeah it might have been later i want to say it was late 80s early 90s i want to say it was early 90s but i could be wrong yeah he did whenever it was he got out at the right time i think i got out of collecting baseball cards at the right time because i by the time the 
baseball strike happened, which really gutted the baseball card industry. I was like, I was fucking by then, man. I wasn't dealing with baseball cards. I guess I don't know if I have any final thoughts on baseball cards. It was it was a thing I was way into, like way, way into. I understand why now that we've had this talk, I understand why the documentary resonates a lot more with you. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a pretty accurate representation of my childhood. Me and my dad fucked with baseball cards for a few years, and then he left, except he died. But yeah, it brought back a lot of memories for me. It made me want to talk about this topic, because I have, like I said, always wondered what would those cards be worth if I The documentary them. guy lives in L.A. You could probably have him on. I don't like doing interviews that much. Like Not even necessarily an interview. Just You should be like, hey, I watched your documentary. But have them on chemistry. I like having chemistry on a podcast. I feel like that. That's why I'm here. Can't you tell? Can't you feel the chemistry oozing from my body? Yeah, I don't. I don't know. I'll have I'll have guests and fucking interviews at some point. I will just point out he's in L.A. That's all. Is he still in L.A.? He lived in L.A. for a while. I assume he still lives in L.A. because he flew in to Toronto. Like his mom picked him up the airport. He's like, oh, it's cold here. That sucks. Because he's in L.A. as like a filmmaker. With his yeah. really, really weird friend. I think that's that's our episode, unless you have anything to add. That I got. I wish I had more. This is not a, a, a to, like a vague, that had, it was like a toy that I had. It was not something I was deeply passionate about, nor have a deep. What kind favorite. of stuff did, like, did you play with or Legos. collect? Legos and Matchbox cars, specifically a lot of farm equipment and sandboxes. Every weekend, fucking, I would build Until what age? I don't know. Fucking fifth grade? Sixth grade? Legos till eighth grade. The sandbox stuff, probably till like fourth or fifth grade. But never like any toys or... I mean, Legos are fucking toys. Yeah, I suppose. But you don't really collect Lego. I mean, you do, but they're not like a collectible. In sixth grade, I got a drum set. So I think from sixth grade on, everything was drums. Yeah. Speaking of which, at the barbecue this weekend, I should finally hear about back about my countless thousands audition. I assumed you were whether playing I, drums. Whether I got in the band. I auditioned over a year ago now, and they have not a single word has been mentioned about my audition. Yeah, I assume you're playing drums at the back of the show. I should rent an entire drum set and have it set up in my yard. We should play baseball. I was good at baseball. That's why it's I collected- a very small yard for baseball. That's why I collected baseball cards. Maybe wiffle ball? Because I was- You know, it'd be fun. We could go to a batting cage sometime. I do like a batting cage. I went to a lot of those as a kid. There was one, actually the place where I finally sold all of my baseball cards off had batting cages attached to it. Like what a dream that place was, but it was way the fuck out. Like, I don't think it was even in Peoria and it was so far out. Like at one point we had the only earthquake I remember in Peoria and I didn't feel any of it because I was so far out of town at these batting cages. So I missed out on that. But, uh, yeah, the Ken Griffey Jr. rookie card, it ruined baseball card collecting. And memorabilia. It did, like, it It just, it became a glut like anything else. It's like true crime now. True crime's gonna fucking go away at some point. It's oversaturated. How many fucking crimes? Are, and well, pe- there's probably a lot, but... No, it's not. I'm I'm planning to do a solo podcast about that too. True crime, true crime's already dying off, and you can tell that by watching Investigation Discovery, where every show is they're they're, repa- for good stories. they're repackaging things that have been on other shows and putting them into like theme shows. So you might have seen this murder or this case on another show before, but because it happened in the winter, 
Now it's on the upcoming season of Ice Cold Killers. And it that is kind of the same idea behind baseball cards with true crime. Advances in technology usually result in a glut of solved cold cases or cases that previously wouldn't have been solved quite so easily. Like DNA is obviously one example. Man, how pissed are you as a killer if you got away with it for 30 years and then like DNA or one of these other things is the thing now? Like you could have never thought right. of, of that. Well, the other thing that... That's right. I'm empathizing with murderers. Yes, you certainly are. The other thing that took a lot of people down and resulted in this big glut of arrests that we might not have had at one point before was cell phones and people not realizing that their cell phones are giving away their location even when they're not on it. So a lot of murders got solved that way also. And it caused this big glut of either solved cold cases or really interesting murders that made for good television. But the thing about those advances that cause all of these arrests and cause all of these cases to be solved is that only happens for a finite amount of time. And then crime rates just start dropping, which has been happening happening steadily in this country for like 25 fucking years. So now true crime is either shows that are repackaged that they've already talked about that are just repackaged into other shows, or it is a literal celebration of shitty police work. That's, <laughs> that's what you see. You see old murders or crimes where they're like, can you believe the police arrested this fucking guy? What a bunch of fucking idiots. Like, true crime, it's it's exploitative. It has been for a long time. And I think it's hitting, it's hitting its Ken Griffey Jr. rookie card moment where there's too fucking much of it. And we're moving into a different kind of world where people are going to be like, oh, yeah, it sucks that you're making money off this. True crime made me think of white wine. True crime, that made me think of wine. The wine industry has to be similar to... The baseball card industry, right? And that, like, how I don't many think bottles? So, because wine collectors will have been around forever. You like that's the thing. The market for it has to go away for for collecting something to become worthless at some point. Wine collectors will always exist, and you'll always have people to sell your stockpiles of wine to. Baseball cards aren't that way. They had a huge collector market at one point. And those collectors went away. Beanie Babies, Pogs. Like, it has to be a timeless thing. And wine is timeless. Baseball cards aren't. All right. We need some air conditioning, so. We will turn the air conditioning on. But you did mention at one point the internet also. That did play a little into the death of the baseball card industry. Because baseball cards in their earliest form and their earliest purpose was they were a collection of statistics about the various players in the league. You flip it over, it's got their stats from all their previous years, who they played for, all that good shit. And if there was one thing that early internet fucking loved, it was statistics. Yeah. So you could go anywhere on the internet and it find baseball statistics. also kind of a social group where you had to like go to these things and have trade. Like you don't yeah. need that anymore. Yeah, baseball card conventions were a big part of my childhood. I met Joe DiMaggio at one. I met Ernie Banks at one. I met all these fucking... Uh, huge, famous baseball legends who would just show up at these baseball card conventions and sign autographs for like $10 a pop. I was in Vegas three or four years ago, might even five years ago now, and there was a sports memorabilia store inside one of the like casino shopping centers, and they had a sign uh, 
Dick Buckus here signing whatever cards and stuff. And then I looked at the sign and I realized, oh, that's literally right now. And there were four people in line to meet Dick Buckus. When was this? Like five years ago. That's crazy. Like, I would want to meet Dick Buttkiss. Yeah. But so, that's not necessarily a reflection of Dick Buttkiss oh, no, as a just person. Because like... I, like, I could have met Joe Dante, the director of Gremlins, literally blocks for my studio, not like last month. And I didn't find out about it till the day after. Sometimes I just don't promote that shit. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, baseball cards, man. They used to be a thing. And they still are, but not to the extent they were. And on our next episode, we're going to talk about the thing that really, like when it comes to destroying that market of collectors, the thing that really did it, uh, which is the 1994-1995 baseball labor strike. I thought it was the invention of soft toilet paper. Okay, do we have anything to plug before we get out of here? I don't think so. Uh, will the, the live show will have already happened yeah. by then? Thanks for our, everyone who flew in, came out to the barbecue. Stanton's flying in. I don't know if anyone else... Yeah, we we put it up a little late, so I wouldn't I wouldn't be surprised if not as many out of towners make it this time. But we also put up fewer tickets for sale this time, so it works out. Fire fire code. Yeah, uh, we got shut down last time. We got shut down. We killed those firemen though. Uh, all right, let's get out of here. Go rate and review this podcast on iTunes if you're listening to this for free. We would very much appreciate it. Chat, say goodbye. Turn the AC on, bro. I'm going to. It's not that hot. (laughs) Goodbye, everybody. We love you.